A coin for every investment fund in Europe that might be misleading investors. It's not possible to accidentally charge a high fee, represent active management, and then trade around a narrow deviation from the benchmark. Nor is it possible to speed at 120 miles an hour by accident. That the person doing it must know what they're doing. Now they'll have a reason. The speeder always has a reason. The drunk driver always has a reason. But they know what they're doing. That was Paul Bates, a barrister in the UK and Canada. But I may have gotten ahead of myself. This is Fair and Square, a podcast from Federa's. I'm Ellie House, and our question today is, are consumers being missold investment funds? We're looking at closet index funds, an issue of false advertising and overpriced fees. To help me explain, I want to bring in an expert. My name is Guillaume Prash, and I am the uh, managing director of Better Finance. A public interest organisation acting on behalf of European savers and investors. Now, a fund is a type of investment where you can put your money into a single pot which contains various assets, like lots of different stocks and shares. One investment on the customer end, but the money is split between multiple things. So when an investor wants to have the opportunity or to try to beat the market, uh, the overall uh, equity market, he will go to an uh, active fund manager. A fund is considered active if the person in charge makes decisions, such as choosing which assets to invest in and when, which they hope will help meet the fund's stated aim. The opposite is a passive fund. If he wanted to just uh, have the market's uh, performance, the investor would be better off buying an index fund, also called exchange-traded fund, uh, which have a much lower annual fee, a very small annual fee, like 0.10 to 0.3%, and will mimic the performance of the overall equity market. So a passive fund involves much less buying and selling. You put your money in, leave it there, and its value, more or less, follows a standard index. It's essentially tracking the market. And if you invest in one of these funds, you pay lower fees to the person in charge because they're not doing as much. A closet index fund is one of these passive investments hiding in the closet. It's marketed as active with high costs, but it essentially tracks the benchmark. But the problem is, as an active fund, it charges much bigger fees than an index fund. So we are not talking now about 0.10 to 0.3% annually, but we are talking about 10 times or 15 times this amount, like 1%, 1 1.5%, 2% or more. The fund manager is charging high fees for very little. Think of it like a playlist. You love your music and you want to get the best soundtrack for you, curated to your tastes. So you sign up to a streaming service which claims to have loads of fancy analytics tools to design a personalised playlist just for you. You pay a subscription fee to benefit from this technology and expertise, 
only to find that what they've created for you is almost exactly the same as the top 40 charts, which you could have listened to for much less money. You're paying more because you think you're getting more, but a closet index fund like this chart tracking playlist has misled you. So an actively managed fund would typically have fund managers that are doing some sort of fundamental analysis to identify the stocks that they thought were going to outperform the index. This is quite different to a closet index tracking fund or closet indexes, as these are funds that advertise themselves as actively managed, but in reality, these managers follow a strategy that closely mimics the benchmark index that they're trying to beat. It's something Federis has been investigating for eight years. Hi, I'm Russell D'Souza. I'm one of the directors at Federis. Federis has been looking into closet index funds since 2014. Um, it's something that we've been keeping a track on. Um, but really in 2017, when Better Finance, a European consumer organization, um, approached us to replicate uh, the ESMA study, so the European Securities and Markets Authority study, that is really the first uh, major piece of work that we did in this area. The European regulator did some research back in 2016, where they found, quote, a small but not insignificant number of funds in the EU equity fund sector that may be closet index trackers. But they didn't name any potential offenders. It was just about showing the scale of the problem. So Better Finance, Guillaume's organisation, got in touch with Federis because they wanted names and numbers. So ESMA was very careful. It used a variety of uh, uh, indicators to, to, to measure whether these funds were closet indexes or not, meaning whether funds claiming to be active were de facto mimicking uh, the index. And most uh, importantly for us, they did not disclose who were these funds which were uh, suspected of being closet index funds. So this ESMA is in charge of protecting uh, in retail investors. So how are you protecting us if you are not warning us about uh, which funds could be uh, problematic? So Better Finance wanted to actually publish this list of some of the worst funds so that retail consumers could be aware of this issue and, if necessary, um, make a better investment decision. The first problem with trying to actually quantify closet index tracking is how do you define that? There is no hard and fast rule about exactly how to classify a closet indexer. Uh, ESMA did give some information about the criteria that they used, and so we did our best to replicate those criteria. The regulator set out three key metrics. So the active share, the tracking error, and the R-squared. Complex statistical analyses. Let's pause for a sec and work out what is going on. I spoke to the guy who came up with one of these measures, Martin Kramers. Can you just explain what is the active share? What, what does that mean? Absolutely, sure. So active share measures how different the holdings, the actual investments in the fund are from its benchmark. And so that means if you are investing in an actively managed fund, the active share will tell you what proportion, what percentage of, of, of 
holdings of the portfolio weights are actually different than the holdings of, of the benchmark. And that's important because if you're paying a higher fee for an actively managed fund, then at very least, right, as a starting point, you want to make sure that you are getting something that is substantially different. Okay, so hold up for a second. Can we just quickly dig into what the benchmark actually is? The benchmark generally will capture what their overall investment strategy is. So for example, an equity fund will have an equity benchmark, a mutual fund that invests primarily in bonds will have a benchmark that reflects broad investments in, in, in bonds. Martin came up with the idea back in 2005 when he was at the Yale School of Management. He and a colleague overheard debates about whether one of the biggest equity mutual funds in the world at the time was actively managed. And the debates all rested upon a comparison of the returns, how much the fund was making versus the benchmark. And I remember thinking, why are they arguing about this? Right? Why don't you just look directly inside the portfolio and compare portfolio holdings? So why do you try to measure this using returns, which are very noisy, but why don't you just directly look under the hood, so to speak, of the portfolio, compare the holdings of the fund to the actual holdings, the actual investments in, in the benchmark, and see how different they are. Okay, so that's what the active share measures. According to both Martin and the European regulator, any overlap under 60% is potential cause for concern. Red flag number one. Our second metric was tracking error. So in the technical jargon, we say that the tracking error is very small, meaning uh, the difference uh, of the perf- between the performance of the fund and the performance of the market, of the relevant index is extremely (laughs) tiny. Red flag number two, a tracking error that's under 4%. And R squared reflects the percentage of the portfolio's movements that can be explained by movements in the benchmark. And red flag number three, a high R squared. That's enough jargon. Back to the main event. What did this 2017 study find? In February 2017, we were able to uh, release the results and um, made quite a lot of noise because, of course, uh, we published the full list of all suspicious funds. uh, And there were hundreds of them. Hundreds of suspicious ones and... There were 63 funds which met the strictest criteria that was put forward by ESMA. That was five years ago. Better Finance encouraged regulators across Europe to act. And um, what happened is that uh, quite a few jurisdictions said, OK, we are, we're going to look into this now. Uh, but apart from uh, the UK, FCA and Norway, uh, Norway sanctioned one fund and the FCA sanctioned tens of funds, but did not disclose which ones they were. Uh, they sanctioned them and they asked the uh, fund managers to indemnify investors. But we could never know uh, who, which were these funds. Huh? Uh, it was about 60 funds, uh, but uh, we, we never knew. Overall, none of these funds were kind of named. So investors, individual investors, wouldn't really know maybe which of the funds that they're invested in 
might be exhibiting these closet index traits. Half a decade has passed, but it's not clear how much has changed. So Federis decided to recalculate some of the metrics using more up-to-date figures. And in particular, we wanted to filter for some of the, I guess you could call kind of worst defenders or the funds that had metrics most similar to a passive fund and really just try to get a sense of how they're currently performing. They took those 63 funds that seemed to be showing signs of closet index tracking back in 2017 and ranked them again using those metrics which had originally been put forward by the European regulator. And from that, we were able to produce a list of the top 13 funds. But what we really would have liked to have seen is that all of the publicity and the various regulatory investigations over the past five years would have acted as a warning sign to the fund managers who did have metrics that were very similar to a passive fund. But that didn't happen. In short, we're not seeing that much kind of regulatory action against these fund managers. So perhaps one of the reasons could be that there's not much of not much of a downside to continuing to carry on with some of these closet indexing um, strategies. All of this work by the ESMA, Better Finance and Federes looks at the issue of closet indexing in Europe. We saw uh, that the percentages and the number of suspicious funds were highest in uh, the big jurisdictions like Luxembourg uh, or France. But it's wider than that. It's global. QR expert from across the pond. I'm Paul Bates. I'm a UK and Canadian dual qualified litigation counsel as a barrister in the UK and in complex commercial litigation and class actions in Canada, and also recently qualified in the Commonwealth of Massachusetts. For years now, Paul has been watching this issue unfold in Canada. Canadians have about $2 trillion Canadian invested in Canadian mutual funds held by retail investors. And the Canadian sector has been found by peer-reviewed international financial studies to be less competitive than other places, including the United States and Europe, with the result that Canadians pay quite high asset management fees. The perfect environment for closet indexing. So when you combine high fees and low activity, Canada is a marketplace in which retail investors pay very high fees and sometimes get very little value. A 2016 study by our active share expert, Martin Kramers, and his colleagues found that 37% of the assets in equity mutual funds sold in Canada were in closet indexes, more than in any other country covered by the research. Uh, And in Canada, we're not famous for regulatory aggressive action. I'd be very pleased to see it, but when it's not forthcoming, the lawyers like myself and a few others will step into the breach and take a case on and see what can be done, if anything, for investors. The only regulatory action available is consumer class action activity, which is a slow and expensive, very difficult uh, system by which to take on very deep-pocketed industry people. And it's uncertain and you you never know what the outcome of cases will be and and the appeals of the cases. So it's not the best system. Do do you think this is definitely intentional? Like, is is this a conscious decision to mislead investors or could it be done accidentally. It's not possible to accidentally charge a high fee, represent active management, 
and then trade around a narrow deviation from the benchmark. Nor is it possible to speed at 120 miles an hour by accident. The, the person doing it must know what they're doing. Now, they'll have a reason. The speeder always has a reason. The drunk driver always has a reason. But they know what they're doing. And, and I think that you will find, in fact, that uh, very few people would suggest it's an accident. What they, when they're caught, they don't say, I made an accident. They say, well, it was my view, the best thing to do at the time. But they know they're doing it. They know it. And that's why they should return all the fees. That's what Better Finance is campaigning for. So now it's time um, to, to sanction and to uh, and to demand uh, indemnification uh, of uh, of the detriment that uh, has been uh, borne by uh, individual investors whether it's lawyers like Paul Bates campaigners like Better Finance or economic experts like Federa's there are people standing in ordinary investors corner fighting to stop closet index tracking but there is a long way to go Follow Fair and Square on all podcast streaming platforms and Federa's on social media to stay updated and to learn more about how to protect your finances.